a gun in the face. Then all of a sudden, they all kind of lined up. They pointed their guns at me. And this is the point where I thought, I'm going to die today. Started two years of horror for an American in Venezuela. They said, you need to give us your phone and get ready because you're coming with us. I'm Becky Bruce, and I spent a year researching and piecing together Josh and Tammy Holt's story about their ordeal in a notorious prison. That's when everything started to turn bad. We had another pound on the door. Boom, boom, boom. And there was the police once again. You can binge all of the episodes of Hope in Darkness on kslpodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Inside Sources. Inside Sources. Inside Sources. Where KSL offers Utah deeper insights on the news. Host Boyd Matheson divides rage from reason and elevates the conversation on issues crucial to our community. On KSL News Radio 102.7 FM and 1160 AM. Well, seniors who benefit from Social Security can expect bigger checks in their mailboxes next year. The program recently received the largest increase in its cost of living adjustment in 40 years. Of course, to help retired seniors pay for the rising price of housing, groceries, gas, and more. But the increase might be based on an outdated inflation measure. And how is that putting pressure on the program? Is there a better way uh, without raising costs unnecessarily? And uh, we're really pleased to have back on the program Romina Bacha is the Director of Budget and Entitlement Policy at the Cato Institute. She specializes in federal spending, budget process, and more, and Conveniently, she's stationed here in Salt Lake City, which we love. Uh, Romina, welcome back to the program. It's so good to be with you. Uh, so give us the, the backstory first in terms of this uh, initial increase in terms of Social Security. What is that based on? Uh, what are they trying to do there? And then we'll get into how do we do this maybe a little bit better. Yeah, so Social Security's cost of living adjustment has been law since 1975, which is when they also determined which index to use to determine this cost of living adjustment. And that index is the so-called CPIU, which was based on the purchasing uh, purchasing behavior of roughly one um, out of three Americans, um, so-called urban and clerical workers. Uh, But that index is uh, long outdated. So um, some of the problems it has is because it looks at such a small portion of the population, only about one-third of workers, it isn't as accurate as it could be. And then it also doesn't take into account um, the fact that when prices rise across the economy, they generally rise um, not across the board the same. You'll have some price increases that are higher, some that are less. So, for example, if the price of apples rises faster than the price of bananas, some households will choose to buy more bananas instead of apples. And that's called the substitution effect, which you also want to account for when you're um, when you're estimating inflation. But anyways, Social Security Administration doesn't take any of that into account because they're using this very old measure from 1975. Since 1999, we have a much more accurate measure, the so-called chain CPI or CCPI U, which uh, takes into account the purchasing behavior of, of almost nine out of 10 Americans. So a much larger portion of the population is therefore much more accurate and also takes into account the so-called substitution effect that we will substitute other items when the price of certain goods rises to the extent that 
that we're able to do so. So accounting for inflation with this more accurate measure would save Social Security about $150 billion over the next 10 years, um, assuming uh, we can get inflation under control. Otherwise, it would likely save even more. Yeah. Well, let's uh, so let's dig into a couple of those components. I'm I'm still trying to wrap my head fully around the fact that we were using uh, an index from 1975 based on one third of Americans who are in clerical positions. Uh, I, I think that's fascinating that it takes this long to to even have a serious conversation about how do we change that or what should that really look like. Uh, and is this just one more example of like once something is set in motion by government, that making that change is often becomes just more difficult? You know, that I would say that that is part of it. But somehow Congress had no trouble adopting the change CPI for the yeah. tax code yeah. when we did tax reform in 2017. So lawmakers um, managed to upgrade that measure when it worked in their favor, namely it increased taxes on American families. Um, because it it uh, increases so-called real bracket creep where mm. um, American households end up in higher tax brackets sooner because those brackets are adjusted to this chain CPI. So uh, we could have adopted this for Social Security. Even back in 1983, we could have adopted a more accurate measure, the so-called CPIW. But the, the big source of opposition uh, in doing this for Social Security or other federal entitlement and benefit programs is that um, it would reduce the growth in those benefits. And um, there, there are certain lawmakers who take a position that anything that reduces benefits is, is not worth doing, even if it makes programs more accurate. I think that if uh, lawmakers think that current benefits are too low, they should address this issue directly and not mm. um, indirectly inflate benefits by using inaccurate measures. A stranger with a gun came upon two teens taking pictures under a rising full moon. But violence is only the beginning of this story. Sometimes I thought, there are no miracles. Yeah, there are. And this is a big one. I'm Amy Donaldson, and I've spent my career talking about how lives are undone by violence. The Letter is a podcast about how lives are remade. Follow The Letter at theletterpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Yeah, uh, and I, I love that analogy, uh, analysis because I think that's the the real key. And I'm, I'm glad you pointed out the the tax changes because that was a, a place where lawmakers said, "Oh yeah, we can we can go to something different because uh, we have the votes. We can we can push that through." Uh, I, I want to dig in just a, a little bit further into your your comment about the the benefits. Uh, and, and rather than uh, just saying, hey, we're, you know, these, these people are out to take away your benefits. And so that's, they're bad. They're evil. Uh, we're doing this. So this is good. But to actually change the conversation uh, and have a transparent conversation in terms of what that actually means, what it actually costs, what the benefits actually do, uh, I think is the more important conversation to get to. I agree. The other part of this is that um, I think that we can agree that there are some Social Security beneficiaries that would truly benefit from having a higher benefit, say, especially um, older widows, for example, where we see higher rates of poverty in the program. And then those individuals, 80 and older, who may have um, outrun their other sources of income, say their savings and 401k, because perhaps they didn't expect to live as long mm -hmm. as they did, um, you know, we can have a conversation about the adequacy of benefits for those individuals who need them the most. But to use something like the cost of living adjustment to try and inflate uh, benefits across the board, 
that benefits, you know, even the highest earners who don't need those benefits, and that increases costs for all taxpayers, you know, and Social Security is paid for by working Americans. And, and even at the high Social Security tax rate of 12.6%, um, it's not sufficient to pay for current benefits. The program did run a $126 billion deficit just last year, and those deficits are rising rapidly until the Social Security Trust Fund will be exhausted, uh, which is now projected to occur in 2034. Um, So we we can't look the other way much longer. And the longer we wait to make even small changes like um, updating the cost of living adjustment to something that's more accurate or bigger changes such as targeting benefits towards those beneficiaries who need them the most, Um, increasing the age of eligibility to reflect the fact that Americans tend to now live longer and healthier lives and so they can work longer. Um, We have to have that conversation sooner rather than later because the longer we wait, the the smaller the uh, opportunities and options we will have to change benefits in such a way that current beneficiaries, especially those who are most vulnerable, uh, won't be affected uh, but we also paved the way for the for the next generation to be able to have a secure and stable retirement uh, and to save more uh, to save for more of that in accounts that they own and control. Yeah, and I think that is uh, so vital. I think the the, the targeting component of this uh, alone to to make sure that the those that are uh, the poor and the most vulnerable that they're they're getting the most help uh, rather than as as you said, uh, Romina, that if we're just doing it. Uh, on the top level, then those that are doing really well get more benefit, and that's more costly to taxpayers. And again, just that transparency, a real serious conversation, and and really looking at outcomes uh, and and inputs. You talked about the, the retirement age and how people are living longer and healthier. Uh, I think all of that has to be part of the conversation. So as you as you look at this moving forward, Romina, in in your analysis, uh, what is it that you expect to see the conversation shift to next? Obviously, we've got 22 more days yeah. of, uh, of politicking, uh, and everyone will invoke this in one way or another. Uh, but what's the real conversation we should be having on November the 9th? Yeah, you know, I think that um, we, 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 we really need an ambitious, bold fiscal agenda from this next Congress, uh, because especially given the high inflation that has affected all Americans and how much of that is driven by the spending that occurred during the pandemic. Uh, we need fiscal restraint for the government, but we also need to come together. And I think a bipartisan commission could be very promising to provide that uh, political cover for both parties to do the hard things. And, you know, entitlement reform isn't going to be easy, but it's very much necessary. And uh, we can not continue to keep our heads stuck in the sand and and pretend as if this isn't the problem that's getting bigger every single day. And we also shouldn't wait until a fiscal crisis forces lawmakers' hands, because at that point, when uh, investors basically decide um, that they no longer have faith in Treasury bonds and start dumping them, that can happen very quickly. And we, we, if we look at history, we won't likely have much notice. When that fiscal crisis comes, it will hit very rapidly and uh, very severely. And so we should adopt a more fiscal, uh, fiscally cautious approach now. And that means making a commitment to, de- to reform these entitlements in a bipartisan way, working together across the aisle to 
uh, put in place fiscal restraints and putting the budget on a path to balance that indicates that, um, you know, we're a country that uh, honors its commitments and uh, that can uh, that can that can budget in a sustainable way. Uh, Such great insight, uh, Romina, always uh, looking at not just how we have the hard conversation, but how we avoid the harder conversation later on if we continue not to act. Uh, tremendous analysis. And if you happen to miss any portion of this segment, uh, this should be mandatory listening uh, for every citizen and for every member of Congress. Uh, this is the conversation we need to have, especially when it comes to entitlements uh, of how we do that in a bipartisan way, how we can make sure that we're having compassion and that we're being responsible uh, all of those things are congruent and compatible. And uh, Romina, as always, appreciate your perspective in uh, leading us to that better, higher conversation. Uh, Romina Bacha is the Director of Budget and Entitlement Policy at the Cato Institute. Uh, thanks again for joining us today. Thank you so much. All right, we're going to step aside for one last commercial break. When we come back, some final thoughts on a Monday. Stick around. We'll be right back. I'm Dave Cauley investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. Don't miss Cold's new season three, where I look into the unsolved disappearance of Cherie Warren, a woman last seen leaving her job at a Salt Lake City office in 1985. Police cast suspicion on Cherie's estranged husband and boyfriend, but never made any arrests or recovered Cherie's remains. Find Cold season three, The Search for Cherie, anywhere you get your podcasts.